And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to focus on verse 1 through verse 7 this morning. But before we read, um, I've titled today's message, and it's really a, a short series, but it's titled The Gift of Presence. Um, now, those of you that are sports fans, I was going to say fanatics, but I don't think there's any such thing as a fanatic. Um, but those of you that are sports fans, you probably will identify with the word that I'm about to mention. It's a word that commentators in sports often use to reference an event or a moment in the course of a game that creates a significant shift to momentum so that an unlikely victory or an unlikely outcome in a, in a game turns out um, to become reality. And that term is called game changer. Everybody say game changer. Um, so again, when, whenever you hear that word, you want to think in terms of something that is happening or has happened um, that turns the course of events uh, into, an, uh, into an outcome that you were least expecting. So um, most of you may know this. Um, I am a diehard Astros fan. In fact, I have been bleeding Astros orange as long as I can remember. Um, and you know, even when I was in college, I, I, still, I still folks, um, back then in the day when the Astrodome was still around or was still being used, they didn't allow you to bring food into the stadium, but I, I was a college student, I didn't have any money. So my friends and I would actually take our backpacks and we would stuff it with food at the bottom. There's a trick to this. I'm giving you a tip, next time you want to go to a game and they won't let you bring food in, this is the trick. We would stuff food at the bottom and then we'd pile clothes on top of it. And then, you know, we would, we would go to the, the gate and, of course, they're checking bags. And so we would, you know, we would, and, and these guys usually don't check thoroughly. They teach them to check thoroughly, but they really don't because they're trying to get the crowd moving. So they'll usually, so I usually help them out. I'll open the bag. But I'll make sure I open it large, you know, wide enough to where they can't see what's at the bottom. But then they get the impression that it's only closed. And so usually they'll wave us off, and then of course we get into the stadium, we get our seats, and we, then we take out all of our goodies. I mean, and we really start to go to town. Um, but for as long as I can remember, I've always been a diehard Astros fan. And of course, as many of you remember, um, last year we won the World Series in Game 7. It was a seven-game series. We won uh, Game 6, and that's how we ended up winning the series. Um, but it was one of those, uh, but Game 6 to be specific, uh, had one of those game-changing experiences. Those of you that watched the game or you may be familiar with baseball will know what I'm referring to. Um, and it was when uh, the sixth inning, I think it was the bottom of the sixth inning, we were down 1-0. Um, Philadelphia, was, which was the opponent we were playing against, their, their pit, starting pitcher, was, was, he was dominating. And so, of course, you know, the, the skipper hands over the ball to his, you know, one of his very good relievers. And, and for me, sitting and watching the game, you have to imagine, I was, I was petrified because I'm thinking this particular guy that's coming to, to pitch, he is lights out, like nobody hits him. And I'm thinking, we're gonna lose this game, it's gonna go to a game seven, and our, our record in game sevens is pretty bad. Um, and so, um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Well, two players get on base, and then Jordan Alvarez, our left fielder at the time, he gets on base, and the entire time I was praying. In fact, Sister Letsy made me a blanket last, week, uh, last year that I actually would wear. This became my, I don't believe in good luck charms, right? But I would, I mean, every game I'd bring it out and I would wear it, and so, <laughs> so I remember, I had, this, I had this blanket with me, and then of course, Jordan Alvarez comes to the, comes to, to the, to the batter's box, and I want you to see this clip, this is what happens. And this, when we talk about game changers, 
This is an excellent example in sports of what a game changer is. So Tommy, go ahead and play that clip for us so we can see it. And hopefully you'll enjoy it if you're a baseball fan. So imagine you were in that stadium, 43,000 people. We're down 1-0, all of a sudden now we're up 3-1. Game changer. I mean, I still have goosebumps watching that. You may not understand why, it's okay. Um, but but we talk, we're talking about game changers, events that happen that turn unlikely scenarios around, right? And we all, we all identify game changers or game changing events, not only in sports, of course that's usually where we see it celebrated the most. But throughout human history, there have been many examples in history of game-changing events that took place and that changed the course of history. Um, not, they were not always good. There were some that were bad. But nevertheless, they were game-changers in our culture. So I'll give you some examples. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech is one that, as a nation, we revere, we celebrate. Why? Because it was a pivotal speech at a time when we were dealing with you know, race relations in this country. And, and what his speech did more than anything was it really brought to the forefront on the national stage this issue with, with racial inequality. And it, it, it became literally uh, one of the influences that, that, that moved the, the federal government to codify this, this issue of racial equality in our nation. So, you know, even to this day, Martin Luther King's speech is still celebrated as something as a speech that was pivotal in bringing change to our culture. Um, you know, if you go back many, many, many years to World War II, the U.S. Uh, initially at the start of the world, war, the World War, at the start of World War II, was was not inclined to get involved. In fact, we had a neutral stance. We were not going to take sides. We were not going to get involved in the war until Pearl Harbor got bombed. And at that point, the U.S. got involved in the war, and I'm thankful that the U.S. was a part of it in the sense that um, it, was, it was literally the U.S. that played a pivotal role in helping to bring um, an end to the advancement of, of Nazi Germany's uh, rule in, in that part of the world. Um, how many of you may know this? Uh, the antibiotic penicillin that, that is used as an everyday you know, tool for treating cuts and bruises so you don't get infected, that was invented by a man named Andrew Fleming. I can't imagine what, what our world may be like today if we didn't have something like that, something so simple and yet so powerful in making a change and a difference in a person's life. And then, of course, probably this one will live in infamy for as long as, as, as I guess, we will exist as a nation. The, the September 11 attacks, um, I, I literally feel as if the world literally shifted um, you know, following those attacks um, on 9-11, the, the, the thousands of lives that were lost but just the landscape of the world completely changed. Um, in fact, probably for me, the biggest change took place in the, sh in, the, in, the, in, the, in the shape of our global view of terrorism and our response to terrorism. Um, that attack not only put terrorism on a, on a spotlight, but now it prompted the entire world to get involved in this global fight against terrorism. History is filled with stories of good events, of bad events that left a lasting mark on others. Uh, recently, I came across a story that I thought is powerful and I, I hope, I believe will illustrate this point very in, in a significant way. 
Um, it's, it's a story about a man and his children. And I, I want you to put that picture on the screen. Um, this is a picture of a family. It looks like an unassuming family, right? They look like an everyday family, an average family. But yet in the middle of that picture, the gentleman in the middle of that picture is King Mohammed VI of Morocco. He's the current king of Morocco. Uh, standing to his left is his firstborn, the crown prince, Prince Moulay Hassan. To his right is Princess Leila Khadija. She, at this point, now is 16 years old, but in this picture, she's, of course, much younger. And the reason I bring up this picture, this particular story, is because of something incredible that took place when Princess Leila was born. Now, when, when, whenever, whenever you know, families have a new child, what typically happens is they will give out gifts, right, to celebrate this child that has been born. This is what King Mohammed did to celebrate his daughter's birth. Talk about daddy's girl, <laughs> all right? I mean, you know, this man didn't, didn't pass out cigars like many of his contemporaries would have done, but here's what he did. He issued pardons to 8,836 prisoners, and he reduced the sentences of another 24,218 prisoners, all to celebrate the birth of his daughter. Who does that? I mean, incredible. So excited was he at the birth of his daughter that he was willing to change the lives of nearly 33,000 people just to celebrate his daughter's birth. Talk about game changer for those, those individuals that, that, that they happened to be in that stage when he, out of the kind of his heart, decided this is how I'm going to celebrate. Of course, we've, we've since learned that he has not done anything similar to this since. You know, some people may say, well, you know, I'm, you know, those people were lucky. No, it's not luck. It's providence. And it's not simply man's providence, it is God's providence. That he would put on the heart of an individual to say, I'm going to do something that nobody would have ever expect I would do. And in doing so, would completely change people's lives around. In the, in the text we're looking at this morning, and I'm grateful for the presentation that uh, Isaac and Anthony did, because it ties very, very vividly into what we're going to read this morning. But in the text we're about to read, we're going to see um, God, as it were, suggest to not only the nation of Israel, but to the world, as it were, that he is demonstrating um, a, a very generous act to an undeserving world. Isaiah, in chapter 7, uh, talked about the coming of the Messiah, and he uses different words to describe this Messiah and what he was going to come to do and what his coming would mean for the world. But in chapter 9, we're going to see the Lord make a declaration to the nation of Israel, but not only Israel, but to the nation of, of Judah, to let them know that, that he is indeed a gracious God, that he is a kind God, and that, and that in sending this, this, this child that is to be born, that God is gifting the world in a way that, that you and I could, could never, ever, ever expect. And, and, and the reality that there's no greater gift than this very gift that he has extended to us. But before we read, I want to give you a little bit of context to the scripture about to read. So the prophet Isaiah, when he started his ministry, started it at a time when the Assyrian Empire was picking up steam. This was before the Babylonians showed up, but the Assyrians were in charge at that time. And they dominated most of what is modern-day Iraq, but they also dominated parts of Turkey, of Iran, of Syria, of Kuwait. And at this particular time, 
uh, history tells us that the kings of Damascus, which is modern-day Syria today, the kings of Damascus and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel were paying tribute to the Assyrian king. This was part of kind of that, that uh, paying a due, in a sense, in, in, you know, to, to placate this king or to, uh, to, to keep this king from, from coming to destroy their territory. And, and this went on for a period of time, but then eventually Scripture tells us that these two kings grew tired of paying these tributes, and so they came together and they banded together to rebel against the king of Assyria. But before they acted on their plan to rebel against this king, they went to the king of Judah, the southern king, the southern kingdom of Judah. They went to the king, Ahaz, and they asked him to join their alliance. So instead of just two nations, now it will be three. But unfortunately for them, Ahaz refused. Ahaz did not want to join their coalition. And so because Ahaz refused to join their coalition, these two kings banded together to then attack Judah. Remember, they wanted Judah to be part of their coalition to go after Assyria. Now Judah says no, so they band together and now they're invading Judah. And so in invading Judah, Ahaz then turns to Assyria. Talk about drama. He turns to Assyria for help to keep away these two countries that are coming against him. Now meanwhile, when he did so, when he was attempting to do so, the prophet Isaiah reached out to the king and said, do not do it. Why? Because God is saying, depend on me. God is saying, trust me to protect you, to take care of you, to, to, be, to be your protector, to be your shield against these two warring nations. But Ahaz refused. Ahaz still insisted and he went to the king. And so God said through the prophet to King Ahaz that because Ahaz chose to trust, trust Assyria over the Lord, that God was going to use the very same Assyrians that he had gone to for help to one day come back and they would destroy Judah. So, again, in spite of the warning, Ahaz still refused to do what God asked him to do. And of course, the, when he went to the Assyrians for help, they were very swift in responding to Judah's request. And so they came, they invaded uh, Damascus, they invaded Israel, they made Damascus um, one, of their, one of their provinces, uh, they completely leveled, uh, they completely, uh, excuse me, they, they turned Israel into a province and they completely leveled Damascus. And, and during this period, the scripture describes a time of gloom and doom that was associated with the Assyrians' invasion. But in chapter 9, we see God make a promise to the people of Israel that this time of gloom and doom will not last forever. That even though, yes, they had disobeyed the Lord, uh, turned against Him by by doing what they had done, God promised that indeed there would come a time in the future where they would experience peace and joy and it would be marked by the, by the birth or the arrival of a righteous king whose rule, God said, would be everlasting. And so I want us to read the text this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Verse 1 again writes, but there will be no more, everybody say no more. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness, and this is the pivotal verse. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. 
the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. In other words, God is saying there will be a time where they will not be needed any longer. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And so the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So as it were, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were going through a season of gloom and doom, terror, uh, brought on by their rebellion against God. And the Bible says that God said, in spite of bringing judgment against them, that this judgment would not last forever, but that there would come a time where a game-changing event would take place in history to once and for all turn around the fortunes of the people of God, but not only the people of God, but the peoples of the earth. And that birth, friends, was the birth, that, that, that coming, uh, that game-changing event, excuse me, was the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this? Because when you look in Matthew chapter 4, beginning specifically verse 13 and 14, it, the, 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 the writer of the book of Matthew, Matthew himself, references Isaiah's prophecy in the verses we just read, when he tells the people, and the scripture tells us in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4 that uh, at the time when, when, um, uh, when John the Baptist was in prison, Jesus' ministry took off. And that Jesus' ministry began to fulfill what Isaiah had declared about 700 plus years before. That there was one who was going to come and that this individual would come and he would essentially turn things around. That he would change the prospect of the nation of Israel's condition, their standing with God. And that his arrival, his presence would be, as is, in a sense, God's gift to the nation of Israel, to his people and to the world. Uh, to, to demonstrate his love for you and I. And so what I wanted to do in these next few minutes is very quickly answer the question. Um, what does the birth of Jesus mean for us? How is the birth of Christ a game changer for you and I? You know, we saw the presentation, the, the wise men, and they were talking about uh, just how, uh, how significant the, the arrival, the birth of the, of the Messiah was for them and how much it changed their perspective, how much it changed their, their outlook on life and their sense of what lay ahead of them. For every one of us, friends, even though the birth of Christ is 2,000 plus years removed from us in, 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 a, in a timeline of history, the reality is that birth is still significant for us today because of what it represents. That in the same way that God through the prophet Isaiah said to the people of Israel, there will come a time when one will come on the, on the doorstep of humanity and his presence will bring change, significant change to the world. That so in the same way God is saying to you and I that we are to look at the birth of Christ as a significant point in human history that changes the, tra the trajectory of our lives changes the future that we have to look forward to. When I look at the birth of Christ, I see it as a literal game changer for humanity. Because the reality, friends, is this. Without Christ coming into the world, without this child being born, he would not have lived to then die on the cross. Why? So that he might redeem us from the power of sin. Jesus' birth is significant because it was to bring deliverance to humanity. And so again, the question is, how does the promised arrival of Christ serve as a game changer for us? Three things I want to challenge you very quickly with this morning. Number one, that the birth of Christ has given you and I hope and the promise of salvation. 
The Bible makes it clear to us this morning that the arrival of Christ brought with it the assurance of our redemption from sin and of its consequence. Again, we are looking at the nation of Israel. We're looking at the, 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 the consequences of their decision to, to turn against trusting God and trusting in man or trusting in themselves. And God said, on the heels of the judgment that will come because you chose to trust in yourselves, to chose to trust your way over me, over trusting me, that I would step in and I would bring redemption and I would bring liberation to you. Uh, the, the, the promise that you and I have today is this, that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, that we have salvation. That's why I love John 3.16. It's more than just the most often referenced scripture in the Bible, but it is a powerful scripture because it speaks to this promise of hope and salvation that is available when we come to faith in, in Christ. And what does it say? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son so that everyone... Again, God doesn't qualify the word everyone. He simply says everyone who what believes in him will not perish. God makes salvation available to all. The only condition is we must believe in his son. That is the only way we can avail ourselves of the promise of salvation he has made to us. And when we do so, the Bible says we will not perish, but instead we will have eternal life. Eternal life, not in the sense that we will live in this life forever, that I'm going to live thousands and thousands of years. No, listen, this body is not going to last a hundred years, let alone a thousand years. But I have this assurance because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. That I know that, even when, that when, when, when my time on earth is done, I will live forever. We, are, we, we, we celebrated the, the home going of a brother, the Lord, uh, several weeks ago at the Fondren campus. And Pastor Bruce made a profound statement when he said that, that this brother has stepped from the land of the dying into the land of the living. We think that, that when, when a person dies, that they step out from the land of the living into the land of the dying. No, for those who are in Christ, friends, the Bible makes it clear that we are stepping out from a land of the dying into the land of the living. And that promise is made available to us. Why? Because Jesus came. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have that assurance of salvation. We have that assurance of redemption, that when we call on his name, that he will rescue us, that he will redeem us, that he will save us. This promise is a source of comfort and joy for all believers and a reminder of the love and mercy that God has shown to you and I. That through his life and through his death and ultimately his resurrection, that you and I have the promise of salvation, the hope of eternal life, free from the bondage of sin and death. If you're grateful, say praise the Lord. Not only did Jesus come and give us the hope and promise of salvation, but the Bible tells us that the coming of Christ provides you and I with access to right standing with God. Not just access to God, but access to right standing with God. Why is that important? Why? Because God is holy. God doesn't just simply say, I want a relationship with you, but you're going to remain the way you are. And it's not possible. Why? Because God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And we, on the other hand, because of sin, we are unholy. We are imperfect. We are flawed. Our flesh is constantly drawn to the things that are opposed to the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God for our lives. And so in coming into relationship with God, the Bible says God's desire is to change our lives so that we are not living by the dictates of our flesh, but now we are learning how to live by the leading of the Holy Spirit that conforms to the will, purpose, and plan of God in our lives. God's desire is that you and I come into right standing with Him. Relationship is not possible until you come into right standing with God. And is right standing made possible because of your effort? 
Is it a matter of you trying to do good works, trying to live a good life, trying to do good deeds and hoping that it will be enough to earn God's approval? No, the Bible makes it clear that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you and I can do to earn God's approval. We can do all the good in the world. We can give all of our possessions to, to, to benefit others. But the reality is if, if Christ does not have our hearts, friends, it is for nothing. We cannot earn God's approval. We cannot earn God's love. That's what the Bible says that even while we were still sinners, and the concept of a sinner is one who does not love God. A sinner loves sin. A sinner loves the flesh. A sinner loves to, to give into the desires of their heart. A sinner does not love God. And the Bible says that even while we, we were sinners, we did not love Him. What did He do? He loved us by sending His Son to die on the cross for us. Right standing with God is what God desires, but it's not based on our effort. It is God that creates the access. It is God that makes provision for that. And this is what the Bible says in Ephesians 3 verse 11 and 12. That the purpose and plan of God to bring salvation to the world and that through faith in Christ was in accordance with his eternal purpose. A purpose that God fulfilled in the person of his son. In whom, verse 12 says, we have boldness and confident access through what? Through faith. Everybody say faith. Faith in who? Ourselves? No. Faith in our own efforts. Faith in our, our ability to, to do the right thing at the right time, to live as good a life as we can. No, it says it is by faith in Him. It is Christ that gives us access to the Father. So part of the reason that God sent His Son is so that God can make provision so that we can have access to Him. Because again, if Jesus didn't have to come, friends, if it was enough for us to, to earn God's approval, then there was no reason for Christ to come into this world. And ultimately, there was no reason for Him to die. But he did so, why? Because he was the only way that you and I could have access to the Father. This access is possible for all who believe in him and will accept him as their savior. And when we, when we access the Father through faith in the Son, the Bible says we receive forgiveness from sin and we are brought into relationship with God. John chapter 1 verse 12, one of my favorite scriptures says, To those who believe in his name, he gave them the right, the right to become children of God. You and I are sons and daughters of God. We can be sons and daughters of God because we believe in His name. The third reason why Christ's coming is a game changer for us is because His coming brings us to a place of peace with God. Again, the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death, separation from God, from His presence, from His best, from His will, from His purpose, from His plan. And it's not, that God's, it's not that God is running from us, it is that sin has driven a wedge between us and God. And it is, it, is, it is this figurative wall that stands between us and God and blocks our access to God. And the Bible says that God's desire is that God will remove that wall of separation that keeps us from Him. And again, that He did through His Son, Jesus Christ. And in removing that wall of separation, God now brings not only forgiveness, but He brings peace with God. Where we know that, that there is nothing that is separating us from His love. That there is nothing that, that can condemn us. Why? Because we are redeemed through the saving work of Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that therefore having been justified by faith, you and I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all know what it's like to be in conflict with others, right? I remember many years ago, I had a very good friend um, that... that used to serve with me in, in youth ministry and I had to make a decision to, 
um, to have him to have him no longer serve in that capacity, and it was it was very it was a very difficult conversation that he and I had to have because I had to explain to him uh, why I, I needed him to, to step down from his role. Uh, you know, I, I still I still loved him, I believed in him, but it was something that that that, that needed to happen. And I remember for a while this brother would not talk to me. In fact, I remember the first day I actually walked up to him um, after we had had our co- initial conversation, and you know there were a group of us standing around each, you know, in a, in a, in, a, in the foyer at the Fondren campus. And I remember greeting everybody, and I reached, extended my hand toward this brother, and he literally turned his back to me. Literally turned his. And, and in that moment, I was mad. I was so angry. I don't know why I was angry. I should. Be, I mean, I, I guess more. Now that I think about it, I, I should probably be more embarrassed than anything. That he kind of like just, you know, kind of like just embarrassed me from everybody. But I was very angry, and I remember for a while. Listen to this. I would literally make. I would. I would go out of my way to not have to run into him in the hallway. If I knew he was in a particular spot, I would find a way to go some. Go another way to get to. I mean, that's how much at peace. Not at peace I was because of the conflict that existed between he and I. And I'm grateful, thankfully, that the Lord mended that relationship, that we became very good friends again. But, but we all know what it's like to be in a state of conflict with someone to where we are not, we are not free, we're not, we're, not, we're not at ease around them, we're trying to avoid them, we don't want anything to do with them. Why? Because of the issue that, that is between us. In the same way the Bible says, our sin caused enmity between us and God. And it's not that God didn't desire us or that God stopped loving us and stops loving us, but what happens is sin causes you and I to resist Him. We don't want to be connected to Him. We don't, we don't, we don't want to be engaged with Him. But thankfully, when Christ came on the cross, He came to be that, that reconciler and to bridge that gap between us and God. So that now that we, so now that we know Him, we, we desire to know Him. Can I tell you that, that the more I walk with the Lord, the more in love with God I am? the more grateful that I am for God's mercy and grace in my life, the more I know the Lord, the more I am thankful that, 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 he, that He gave me the opportunity to know Him and to choose Him. Why? Because I have peace with God. I'm, I'm not fearful of what He's going to do to me or what He could do to me. I know that I'm His child. Why? Because I put my faith and trust in His Son, in Jesus Christ. Again, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we experience, the Bible tells us, a deep sense of purpose and meaning that transcends the struggles and the issues that we face in this life. God, through Christ, brings peace to us. And when, when, we, when we recognize this morning that because of Christ, we have peace. Because of Christ, we have hope. Because of Christ, we are made right with God, friends. That is a game changer. There is, there, there is no other event in history, f- from my perspective, that is more important, that is more pivotal, that is more significant than this one event. Because it paved the way for Christ to be my sacrifice. And so in the same way that, that for those who, who welcomed Him when He came into the world uh, more than 2,000 years ago, for those who walked with Him as He carried out His earthly ministry, who stood by Him when He gave His life on the cross, who rejoiced when He was resurrected from the dead, and who watched Him go back to heaven, and then on the, on the heels of Him leaving, leaving the earth, here these angels telling Him that in the same way He has gone, He's going to come back. In the same way I say to you this morning, God's desire is that you and I have hope. You and I have a confidence that, that the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ into the world is something that is worth celebrating and that if we will allow it to, that it can bring the change that God desires to bring in our lives. Perhaps this morning, maybe you, you will be honest in acknowledging that your relationship with God is not where it should be. It's not what it should be. Perhaps God is, is an accessory, more so an accessory in your life than He is the center of your world. 
I want to challenge you this morning to consider what the birth of Christ affords us. Again, that it gives us hope, that it makes us right with God, and that it brings us peace with God. And allow the birth of Christ to bring the change that you need in your life today. The change that God desires to bring about in your life and in my life. So that when the, when the watching world sees us, what they don't see is perfection. What they don't see are people who are striving to be perfect. But what they do see are people whose lives have been changed. Why? Because we've had an encounter with the ultimate game changer. And that is Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite every head bowed and every eyes closed this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have of of diving into the Word and, and, and exploring this, this game-changing promise that was first made by the prophet Isaiah and was fulfilled 740 plus years later in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. When he was born, there are many that probably had no real clue or real sense of what his birth meant. God, thankfully, in hindsight, Father, we can look back and we know not only just simply reading the word, but through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we know it is impressed on our hearts, Lord, the significance of the birth of our Savior, because he was born so that he might ultimately give his life as a sacrifice for us. And in coming into this world, Jesus was the ultimate game changer. He represents God's promise to bring hope to the hopeless, God's promise to deliver the afflicted and the, 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 those, who, those who are bound up, Father. That He comes, Father God, to bring peace and to bring reconciliation to those who are estranged. God, thank You this morning for our Savior Jesus. God, we thank You that, that in this season we don't just simply celebrate gifts or, or, or the, the blessing of family or friends, but we, we celebrate Jesus and recognize that His coming has changed everything for us. It has changed everything for me. And I know for so many here today. But God, if there is anyone that is here who is honest enough to acknowledge, Lord, that, that things are not as they should be, that God, they don't have peace. God, that they are not right with you. God, that they don't have the hope of salvation. That God, even now, even now, that God, they will cry out to you in faith and say, God, I need you in my life. God, have mercy on me. God, I renounce the sin that drives a wedge between you and I, that keeps me from knowing you and walking in right standing with you and in fellowship with you. God, I surrender my life to you today, that God, you would change me, transform me, and give me that, that hope and that promise that you have made that I too can experience the joy of salvation because I put my trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so God, I pray this morning that whomever that may be, that God on the profession, on the heels of the profession of their faith in you today, that God, you will indeed save. You will forgive. You will deliver. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, I just want to ask once again, if you're here, you would say, Pastor John, pray with me this morning. I want to make things right with God. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that it is my sin that keeps me from relationship with God. And I don't want sin to continue to drive a wedge between me and my Heavenly Father. I want to know Him today. I want a relationship with Him. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that, I, that, that when Christ came, He came that He might change, change my condition. 
that he might change my life, that he might do something about my sin, pay my sin debt with his life, and that when he did so, he did indeed provide forgiveness and, and freedom from sin. And I'm ready to surrender my heart and life to him. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And I just encourage you to meet it in your heart. Because it is in the profession of our faith in the Lord and in his finished work on the cross that we receive salvation. That it's not about saying, God, it's you and then me, what I do, that brings salvation. But it is my, my willingness to trust that everything that, I, that is needed to resolve sin, you did on the cross. And that I embrace that today as, as being done on my behalf. And I surrender my life to you. I want to invite everyone to pray this prayer with me to encourage those who are professing today faith in Jesus and are ready to surrender their lives to Him. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to make this right with you today. I come to you now and I acknowledge, Father, that I am a sinner, that it is my sin that separates me from you. But God, I am also grateful for the good news that God you have done something about my sin and that by sending your son Jesus that he might give his life on the cross and pay a debt I could never pay I surrender my life to you today Lord and I invite you to come into my heart and be the Lord of my life help me to live for you help me to know you Help me to walk with you. I confess that Jesus is my Savior from sin and that going forward, He is the Lord of my life. Thank you for making me your child. Thank you for, for changing my life. Thank you for giving me a new identity. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen.